Before we get to today's episode, I want to ask you guys for a big favor. Go ahead and follow or subscribe and leave a rating or review on this podcast. It goes a long way. It helps people find the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. Okay, on to today's episode. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. I just talked to a guy who made $28 million running a magazine ad, and he is just getting started. You might know who I'm talking about. This is Craig Fuller. And I wrote a post on Craig that ran on LinkedIn and Twitter about how he bought Flying Magazine and is now building an aviation community in Tennessee, which is so cool. Craig actually reached out and was good enough to have a conversation. So we did that today. And I got to tell you, this was unbelievable. Craig's story from starting out in his 20s, building a business inside the company his father ran, it eventually became the biggest piece of that business, $80 million company. And then from there, he got into fintech. Then he got into media with freight waves and software. And then, of course, aviation. It goes on and on. There is so much gold in this conversation. I think you guys are going to love it. Give it a listen. And just so you know, the story of Flying Magazine, that comes up about 40 minutes in. So there's a lot we talk about early on. Listen to the episode. But about 40 minutes in, that's when we get into the story that you might know from LinkedIn or Twitter. Okay, guys, let me know what you think. You can get me at johndavids.com. I'm on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Here's my conversation with Craig Fuller. All right, Craig Fuller, great to have you here. So just give us a quick 30 seconds on freight waves, and then we'll kind of get into the bigger story. So Freightways is often called the Bloomberg of freight. So what that means is that if you think about what Bloomberg does in the financial economy, providing information and commentary and data to companies and traders that move money and make investments, Freightways does that, but for the physical goods economy. So these are companies that are moving physical products around the globe. So think of them as transportation providers, trucking companies, ocean container lines, railroads, airlines, etc. And the companies that buy transportation services. So it's the big retailers, the consumer product companies, so forth and so on. So 40% of the global economy is tied to logistics-dependent industries. And before we came along, there wasn't a real-time media business and data business that provide up-to-the-date information analytics for participants to respond to it. And if you think about why they care... Whether it's a you know a tweet sent out by a president that threatens to shut down a border or a virus that's attacking you know it's really bringing the economy to a halt or economic cycles or issues that take place, the people that have to deal with those issues are the folks that are responsible for moving the economy. So if you're an auto supplier head of supply chain and all of a sudden a border has been shut down or threatened to be shut down in a week because a president wants someone to fund their wall, and all of a sudden, you have to react with the potential that that takes place. You're having to respond to these events. And those things happen 24 hours, 365 days in the year. Somewhere in the world, something's being disrupted. And we've seen that over the past two years with COVID. And so companies depend on us for information and data, as well as media using our news and journalistic correspondence to basically inform them. So when the CEO of Ford Motor Company is trying to figure out, well, how do I respond to my entire supply chain being disrupted at the border? Or how do I respond to China shutting down their entire economy and not producing goods because of zero COVID? Those are issues that our customers have to deal with and they need to be informed. And oftentimes, because it's so fragmented, they just don't have enough information. Yeah. So you started this in 2016. And what existed before then? I mean, this sounds pretty vital to the global economy. How did this information get out before 2016? In B2B media, you typically have print cycle media. So they would, you know, once a week, you would create a weekly and you would produce news that would go out weekly. There wasn't really a high frequency business media our business news, media business, or data business that existed. A lot of this stuff was lagging indicators. The data was a lot of government data that had multiple months or quarters lag. Just wasn't real-time information. And I think really the value of what we do is we're in many ways creating transparency to to a very opaque market. And it seems obvious now 
that I tell this story? Because you're like, well, wait, shouldn't that have existed before freight waves? And the answer is yes, but my journey wasn't so easy. It wasn't like when I went out to raise money initially, everybody's like, oh my God, this should exist. It was like, why doesn't it exist? And what makes you so smart that you can go create it was more of the sort of cynicism. Like if it doesn't exist, maybe it shouldn't exist kind of thing. But we've learned over the past two years that obviously supply chains are subject to disruption. And because they're subject to disruption and companies have to deal with these disruptions, they need information to deal with them. And we're seeing what we're able to do in providing not only the data that sort of drives those decisions, but also the analytics and the news and information and context to bring that information to life is really critical to the economy. Yeah, and sounds like now that it exists, as you said, it's a question of how did we ever get by without this? I want to go back a little further in your story because I'm curious to know about the beginning of freight waves. But let's go back a little further. How did you start as an entrepreneur? So I, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. My father started what's now the fifth largest trucking company in the United States. My uncle started the what's now the eighth largest truck carrier in the United States. So I, I've been around entrepreneurs my whole life. My grandfather, my great-grandfather. And there's this weird cycle that exists in my family is the most successful entrepreneurs in the family typically work for their father and they get fired at some point. My dad got fired by his dad and so forth. It's sort of like a family lineage. It's sort of one of the sons will end up getting chosen to be fired and, and whoever that is ends up going out and creating something even bigger than what existed before. And so that's been the story from our family is just entrepreneurial roots. I was always the kid that was trying to figure out some business scheme, whether it was selling fireworks in school when it was sort of like contraband or you know, in elementary or high school, or just involved in sort of entrepreneurial projects throughout my life. It's always been something I've aspired to do. You're a do. hustler. Yeah, you have to hustle. And like it's always some type of a way to make money. It's sort of the dream. Yeah, 100%. I find that you know talking to people who are entrepreneurs, there's always a story of the fireworks or I bought the magazines here and I sold them in the playground. And, and that's sort of a rite of passage. So what, what was the first real entrepreneurial... Your dad fires you and then what do you do? Well, so my, I actually got fired later. So I started... Sort of my true success was I started a division inside of his company, which in two years became the most profitable division. And so, so the company at the time was about a billion dollars in revenue. And we ended up creating a business and it generated about $80 million of profit. So trucking businesses are just not really profitable. But this unit, the whole company did about $80 million of profit. We were 68 million of that called the Express Trade Division. I was 22 years old and had this idea of providing on-demand transportation. I had worked in sales inside the company and I would get these calls. It was all selling to air freight companies. And I'll get these calls from air freight operators late in the afternoon that knew me around the Dallas airport. Remember, I'm a sales guy making $26,000 a year, no commission, $500 a week. And basically, I would get calls in the late afternoon saying, I don't care what it costs, I need a truck. And while I figured there was sort of this scheme that I could, again, scheming, if you will, I figured that I could make a lot of side money by selling truckload services, which wasn't the business that I was responsible for, but my family's company was. I could basically create a side hustle of selling truckload services for whatever the market would bear. And I realized that the margins I could make were a couple hundred to a couple thousand dollars per truck was making a lot more. So I went to my dad with a business plan and said, I'm quitting. I'm leaving your company and I'm going to go start my own business. And he sort of patted me on the head. And he's like, look, I'm a CEO of a publicly traded company. I can't support you. It's just a conflict of interest. But why don't I give you a, you know, a little business unit inside my company and, and you can sort of uh, play with it. So at the time, this was right after September 11. US Express was laying off people because the economic cycle was challenging. So they gave me a list of people. I'm like, you can have anybody on this list. They're all on the layoffs. And so we went and interviewed all these people. And we ended up picking out this team, sort of the bad news bears. And it was the ones that when I went to the managers and said, these are the ones I want, they're like, no, you don't want them. I'm like, no, I do want them. And we turned out in two years to be a super fast growing build that to $144 million in revenue and $68 million profit. Which in a company doing 80 million in profit, it was a massively profitable thing. But what I realized really quickly was that the transportation and freight market was incredibly opaque. And if I had the ability to provide trucks when no one else would say yes, if I could sort of do this, and the whole business model was we would provide as many trucks as you wanted within six hours. 
and 60 major US markets. And basically, we would just, you know, a company would call like a Home Depot or a Nestle or a Toyota would call and they need 100 trucks because of some issue in their supply chain that they did not anticipate. And they would call and that was our game. We were wanted to be the 911 operator of the industry. But through that, I realized there was an enormous amount of money to be made out of this opaqueness. Now, what Freightways does is the opposite. We try to... Scary. Can I ask one question about that? Because I'm just I'm yeah. curious. Was the mechanics of the business just utilizing excess inventory? I mean, were you using trucks that were out of service for that day or that night? I mean, how are you actually getting these trucks? No, we're opti- called optimization. So basically, think of it in a trucking business, you have a fine, just like hotels have these businesses or even airlines. The airlines, probably the best analogy. So think about how an airline seat map works in terms of yield. Most airlines, particularly the premium carriers, Delta, American, United, they really make all their money on that first class, last minute booking seat. You know, you go from if you and I book a vacation and it's say six months out, we're probably paying two hundred to three hundred dollars for that seat to say fly to Florida from Tennessee. And so, basically, the reason they do that is they want to fill that plane up and they want to they want to maximize the yield on that airplane. But that three hundred dollars doesn't actually cover the cost of what I what I'm responsible for, my pro rata portion of that airplane, where they make their money is on the last minute bookings and particularly on first class bookings for people who are indiscriminate at what they end up paying. So they're, what they end up doing is they want business travelers, which are using ex- basically expensing the cost to go spend $3,000. So we're on this, we get the same service. First class and, and coach are not that different. The seats are a little nicer. But the reality is, I'm actually getting the same service and they're just charging a lot more for the person that booked that last minute ticket. Trucking works the same way. Is basically, and this did not exist before we sort of created it, was you had a large trucking business with a couple thousand trucks and they had managed their capacity where they would manage it where basically every day they would have this capacity map they would end up booking and they weren't set up to take advantage of those last minute trips. So what we would end up doing is we called it reoptimization was we would end up basically raiding the existing capacity and finding inefficiencies that existed or maybe a truck was at home because the driver was off duty or maybe there was a delayed appointment that's 2 days out. Maybe there was trucks in Arizona that you're taking freight out of California and you could just pay for the deadhead to shift them. So there's basically our job was to anticipate when a market was about to explode because these things are these things happen in freight where market conditions explode and basically our job was to anticipate weeks or months out where the conditions of the market would be right for these sort of premium opportunities. And that was the business we built. So I got to understand the last minute nature of freight and the opaqueness. And that was essentially what we did was we just re-optimized the map. Amazing. And then fast forward, how does this business progress? And then how do you eventually get fired? So I left so public and company. It was obvious that I was sort of a hellraiser inside the company. No one, you know, the executive management was uncomfortable with my, you know, think about what I've said in reoptimization. We also think about the downside is we're constantly so someone load planning would go in in the morning, plan out their day. And then at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, because most of our work was like late in the afternoons. Remember, we're a 911 operator waiting for those last minute evening calls. At 4 o'clock in the afternoon, we would go in and completely obliterate a market. So they had this plan they worked on all day, planning the trucks out, the dispatches out, and all of a sudden, that entire map's gone. But next morning, all the freight that they planned the day before was completely had to be replanned. So it created a lot of tension. So I wasn't very popular. I made a lot of money for the company. But as an executive, I was not well-regarded inside the company. So it was obvious to me that I wasn't going to make it inside my dad's company. So I wanted to do something on my own. I volunteered for a job to turn a company around and sell it, which was a division they had in air freight. And I did that for six months. We laid off like a thousand people when we shut this business down and sold it. And it was a really, it was traumatic. I mean, I didn't set out to sell off the the business and, and do this massive shutdown, but that's what I ended up volunteering for because it became very obvious that that division was not, we couldn't repair it, couldn't fix it. It was better to sell best for the shareholders. And I did that job. And that really just messed with my head because as an entrepreneur, as a founder, the last thing you want to do is let people down. And I let a lot of people down. I felt even though it was right for the business, I felt like I had failed them. And so I wanted a break from my dad's company. And 
decided to go basically move into payments and fleet cards. And that started my true entrepreneurial journey. My dad was my financier. So he financed it. But if you've ever built a technology company, particularly one in fintech that requires a lot of CapEx because you're dealing with high levels of security, high levels of compliance, you have to have redundant systems, you know, debit cards that don't work because we were in the debit card issuing and fleet card issuing business. If somebody has a fleet card and they run a truck and that fleet card doesn't work because a computer system is down... And remember, this is pre-cloud days. There was no cloud computing the days that I ran this business. You had to constantly have redundant sites and it was very expensive. And the problem with using hardware businesses pre-cloud is that as you scaled the business, it just required more capital because you'd have to build new servers. And so this became a big capital drain and we never funded it outside of the family. And it just came to the point where we were starting to really grow and my father couldn't fund it. But he had always built his business on cash flow, like trucking's a cash flow business, and couldn't conceptualize raising money. And I couldn't conceptualize being in a business that didn't grow. And so we came to a head and I ended up losing. You know, it's the golden rule. It's who has the gold rules. And ultimately, he was the investor and I was the recipient of his uh, termination. Wow. Okay. This is like a roller coaster ride you're, you're, you're taking us on. So oh, it was great. I just say the worst thing that ever happened to me was tasting a lot of success really easy in my earlier life. Like that's the worst thing to, you know, it's like these kids that go out and they're like, like kid actors. You don't have an appreciation for actually the struggle because, like, I built my the first sort of entrepreneurial thing was inside this big company with a lot of resources and a lot of talent. And while we were a separate division, there was a lot of things that we didn't have to worry about. Capital being one of those, infrastructure to build and collect being another, and having trucks at our disposal for an on-demand trucking business. And so I think my ego was so big because I thought I had built this thing and didn't appreciate the fact that being a founder is in many ways trying to find out, build something with almost zero resources and stretch it. And sort of almost... You have to be blessed with just miracle after miracle to just make it in life as a founder. And I didn't know that until later in my life. Yeah. And that's I'll put a pin in that by saying a lot of people that listen to this podcast probably are starting from scratch pretty much, or, or they did start from scratch. But what I will say to your credit is, yes, you had resources. Yes, you had all that. But A, you also could have just you know screwed off and done nothing and lived off daddy's name. But the other thing is the fact that the idea itself... And you've done this over and over again, which we'll get to. The idea itself was pretty freaking genius. I mean, you actually saw something that all those other people didn't see or didn't want to see. Or maybe they saw it, but they thought, we're not going to go this direction because we're kind of lazier or we're, we're set in our ways. So there is some credit there for the fact that you actually executed, it sounds like, pretty masterfully pretty early on. Well, I, I don't... <laughs> Masterfully is probably the wrong explanation for it. I think, like, it's brute force, right? Like, you have a belief. I think this is true for founders, and you're committed to that, whatever that commitment is, an idea, and you're hustling. You're, let's, I mean, effectively, it's a hustle game, right? So you're, and you're figuring out how to like tweak the system and play inside the system in a way that that works for you. You design a product where whatever constraints exist whatever that product is that you're creating, you sort of use those constraints naturally to become your advantage. In our case at Express Direct was one of the reasons we got 60 major US markets in six hours was because when we first started the division, none of the management supported it. So they actually... I would get a call for a truck and they would put me on hold and it would be like a day before I'd, I'd get a response. And so I sort of complained about it. And all of a sudden, they put this rule in place, sort of like, okay... We can handle all of this. We use that as... That was our calling card. That was our product itself was, okay, if they're going to give us first right of refusal on any truck in the system, guaranteed as much capacity in 60 US markets in six hours, that's our product offering. And that was exactly what we did. And uh, I think constraints are actually the best thing for founders. And I, I found that later in my life at FreightWaves was that was... It was a business built out of constraints as well. So talk about the early days of FreightWaves because I, I feel like, like that's where the next leg of your journey starts here. So I got fired by my dad in 2014. And that's a pretty demoralizing thing to get fired by your father. And as a founder, and I think a lot of founders relate to this, your social network is largely built on your business identity and, and the people you network with every day. And that was true for me. The problem was the business was struggling, did not have capital. Like It was basically... you know, It's one of these situations where you're trying to figure out who to pay. 
you're like balancing it out. Like literally it was like down. My dad was not willing to put more money into it. So he fired me to sort of get rid of me. But he was also having his own liquidity challenge at the time. And luckily or thankfully, the business has now gone on to do much great. They're well out of the soup, I call it. But at the time they weren't. And I just basically disappeared. Humiliated, sort of mentally bankrupt, not personally bankrupt, but mentally bankrupt. But I put all my money. I'd never taken any money out of the company. So I really didn't have a lot. I had enough to sort of day trade. And that was sort of my job for the next year was day trading. I lost all my money day trading as anyone who's ever tried to do that as a business can attest to. But as a byproduct of that day trading exercise, I believed I could trade trucking stocks. And at this point, my dad's business was privately held. It had gone private. But it was a big trucking company and all the big trucking companies, as I, as I sort of Freightways core belief is that it's a commodity. And being a commodity means that if one company is doing well, they're all doing well. If one company is doing poor, all of them are doing poor, just the market conditions. Being a commodity, oil company, I don't care if you're the most successful oil company in the world. If the oil market sucks, your business is going to suck as well. Maybe not as bad as your competitors, but if it, times are good, everybody in the oil business does well. Times are bad, everybody in the oil business does poorly. It's the same thing in trucking. And what I thought was that I could day trade or or at least not day trade because there's not necessarily day trading, but I could trade trucking stocks. So I set out to trade and I got the cycles wrong. I was listening to my father. We were, even though he'd fired me, we had a relationship still, not a great one, not a healthy one, but enough to matter, a tense one. But I still felt like he must know what's happening in the market and I could trade all these pocket trucking stocks. He got it wrong. And I had this epiphany that if the, you know, one of the largest trucking companies in the country and other, and I listened to these conference calls of these other large trucking companies and the executives, and they were all bullish at a time that there was a, a freight recession happening in 2015. Commodities were crashing. This is when oil crashed. Oil got down to like $26 a barrel. This is, you know, pretty dire situations, 2014, 2015. And all of the analysts were sort of looking at trucking and downgrading. I realized that something was wrong. There was no information. I was watching CNBC and they kept talking about commodities, but they never mentioned trucking as a barometer or freight activity or the economy. And I thought, well, why not? And so I set out to build a a business that provided information about what's happening in freight, thinking that I could provide some intelligence about the economy using trucking as an indicator. And so we set out to build data services. So I had this business plan. I had, at this point, no money. I'd all burned it through my, day, my unsuccessful day trading. But I had good credit. That was the one thing in my life that I had never lost was I ran out of cash. I had liquidity. And I had taken out this Bank of America credit card, $50,000, zero APR for six months uh, was my credit line. And I ran that up and I funded this. I, again, I couldn't, my dad was not investing. Like he's not having anything to do with it. And he's not going to help me out. He thinks I'm a complete loser. Like I'm never going to be successful. And he's like talking me out of being a founder, an entrepreneur. He's like, hey, I don't, I don't know this is for you. And he's like really talking down how I shouldn't go out and found a company. So he's no help. And I had to go basically use this credit card to build what was the first sort of foray into freight waves. And the idea was we're going to build a, a Bloomberg of freight and make the market more transparent. And that's what we set out to build. And did you... So in the early days, are you... Just just to get into the weeds here, are you like developing a website? Are you hiring writers? How do you actually get the information and get it out there? So we never meant to be a media site. So this is sort of where I talk about constraints. So when I first started, the original business plan was to build a futures market based on trucking. Really complicated sort of business concept. But think of the way oil... So if you sort of believe that trucking, as I do, and still do is a commodity, then every commodity on the planet, whether it's power, the power grid, or oil, or corn, they can be traded. You can actually trade futures. Orange juices, frozen concentrated orange juice is always the favorite because of the Eddie Murphy movie, Trading Places. But like, what's really interesting about that is there's a business... You know, as big as trucking, it's bigger than the US energy market. The US oil production is about $400 billion in, in sort of core production in the United States. And trucking is a $700 billion market. And yet it's a commodity that you can't trade. So the idea was to build a futures market. So I went to Chicago, I went to London, went to New York and sort of learned how futures markets work. And that was the original business plan. We're going to go create this futures market. Well, when we launched it, it took about two years to launch because you have all this regulatory stuff. And I hired a small team of about seven folks. But one of the things that I learned on that journey was that you needed commodity markets, needed data, 
Because if you're going to trade it, you need information. If you trade a crypto or you traded any commodity or even stocks, there's this whole information system, you know, charting systems and fundamental data that people get. Well, that didn't exist in trucking. So I was like, okay, we got to, that's something that needs to be solved. And the second is you need media. You, there's this whole media ecosystem that exists to sort of inform people on what's happening. And there's a desire for people that are in those markets to understand what's happening. Well, that didn't exist. There was no business media. That was sort of high frequency. There was, again, print publishers that would publish something a week later or businesses that were strictly pay to play. And there wasn't really a business media business. So the way we got there was I realized I needed to evangelize this futures market. And I basically contacted the local paper in Chattanooga and they had no interest in covering the press release because they're like, what is a futures market? And I found that as I went out to all the media businesses, that nobody would cover the story. So I started talking to PR agencies. Well, they started turning me down. Like, ah, it's too complicated and this stuff. So I finally found one. And the guy said, look, I'll take you on for $40,000 a month. I don't have the money to like write media and get me in the media. He's like, yeah, it's $40,000 a month. I think he just wanted to like turn me down without insulting me right. or saying no. And he's like, look, if I had a suggestion, you would do it yourself. He's like, go write social blogs and get the information out. It's a complicated topic. You should insource this. So he put out this ad for a blogger, is what we thought, a social media blogger. We're just going to write content about this futures market. An editor at a trucking publication that, again, these on on a print cycle, publishing once a, a week, once a month, applied for a job. And he had an editorial background. And we ended up hiring him. And I remember we didn't have a lot of money. Really, Money was really tight these days. And I was like, man, and it wasn't very expensive. It was like $60,000 at the time. But I was like, ah, it's a lot of money. $60,000 for a small business with like seven employees is, is tight. And maybe we shouldn't be doing this. But I hired him. And I was like, look, I want you to build this website, but I don't, don't want you to call it at the time the company calls Transvix. It's a really horrible name, but that's what we called it. And I was like, I want you to call this something else. And I want you to write content about the trucking market, but not related to futures. And we want to tie news stories into this. So he starts writing this blog and it takes off. And he's writing stories that appeal to a broader market. And again, a constraint. Remember, we took a PR constraint because nobody would cover the story. And we hired a guy to become our own writer. Well, you know, this thing is doing well, but still we're not believing it. We ended up raising a seed round of capital. It didn't even make the deck that we had a media business behind it. At this point, it was just him. And we ended up hiring a second writer. Well, he went on vacation during a hurricane. And I had ran at Express Direct, ran disaster relief logistics for FEMA. So US Express had the contract for the FEMA disaster relief business. And 10 years ago, I had ran the hurricane relief projects. Because remember, on-demand trucking is by its nature a 911 operator and hurricanes drive a lot of last-minute freight. And so I had been on the ground building these things. And there hadn't been a hurricane that hit the US coast for like 10 years, a big hurricane. And so... I ended up, he was on vacation. I ended up writing blog posts in his name about the hurricane, like what to expect, but it was written from a firsthand knowledge and the site exploded. Again, I got like C's and F's in English. So, like, the idea that I would be an editor or a journalist was like nowhere, like a media business was nowhere. But I realized, wait a minute, this is sort of driving a lot of traffic. And then we started covering more stories and we were breaking stories. And all of a sudden, we realized there was this big opportunity to sort of build this community and media business. And it just blew up. And that eventually became a massively big business for Freightways, just the media business alone. That's unreal. So you basically built this media business. And, and all I know about Freightwaves is the media business. I'm sure there's more to it. And I want to ask you about that. So you're saying that the the impetus for all of this was you writing a story and then realizing that there's this big audience that actually has a thirst for this information. Yeah. So I think the two impetuses, one, we couldn't get any media. Nobody would care about our story. So we hired a journalist. Serendipitously, the fact that we had this website that he was writing blog posts to a specific website enabled us to have the core infrastructure, but there wasn't that flash moment. There was no big bang to it. It was doing okay, but not spectacularly, like 20,000 page views a month or something. And I, he ends up going on vacation, happens to be, again, serendipitous, that I happen to run hurricane disaster relief projects for truckers. And this is a major hurricane. It hit Houston, if you remember, a Harvey, biggest hurricane in like 10 years to hit the coast. 
And all of a sudden, I write these blog posts and the site goes to like 200,000 page views. Wow. And it was like, wait, <laughs> this is something. Because like as an entrepreneur, you're always looking... If you're hustling, you're always looking fit. for the That's edge. It. And you're like, Some, something's happening here. And blockchain was also popping up at the same time. And so we ended up... I got this phone call. Someone claimed that I was this blockchain expert. I don't even know how they got that. And they're like, hey, I heard you... Because I think I had mentioned blockchain and some conversation with him. Well, he claimed that he heard me talk about do a presentation on blockchain. Not true. And I got a call and it was by a big software company in the space said, Hey, we're looking for someone to come to our user conference to talk about blockchain. And I was like, that's really interesting. Can you do it? I was like, sure. And so I figured I could become a student of it. Well, when I got done with that, I had mentioned on the call that we, why don't we set up an alliance to create standards for blockchain? And he's like, great. And so the next thing I know, I'm getting this press release in my inbox. This is our standard press release. We want to join your blockchain alliance. And so we created this blockchain alliance called BITA, B-I-T-A, Blockchain and Trucking Alliance, I think is what we called it. And we announced this thing. And again, it was just an edge. I just wanted to basically create awareness and like use this as a calling card for executives to do my futures market. We said, look, if you, if you join the organization, we're going to host our first meetup in Atlanta. And we thought we'd get 30 people to sign up. We had 150. So wow. Microsoft, Daimler... UPS, FedEx, all of them are joining this beta thing. And like that was our first commercial product. And they, they all show up to this event in Atlanta. 150 people were there. And like It was the worst event I'd ever been to, even though I'm the host. It was horrible. But we realized something magical was happening. We had the media business, which was driving a lot of content. And we had this community that were, were coming around an idea that nobody knew what blockchain was, even including the founder, really knew what it was, that believed that standards in freight and technology in freight was there was an opportunity. So we said, wait a minute, why don't we take that blockchain thing, the, the beta organization, and all of this media presence and put together this platform where we built this community. And so that was really what leapfrogged us into where we're at today was we built on the foundational element of a being a media business, a media business is a host events. And then in, in the May of the next following year, we did a Freightways. We rebranded the company as Freightways following the blog name Freightways, which is what the company had created the blog out of and sort of owned it as a one entity. And we said, look, we're going to be Bloomberg. They have a media business. They do events. This will be our business model. And then we ended up creating a data product out of it as well. Again, a constraint. We went to a software vendor that builds trading platforms and we contracted with them to build us a trading platform for futures, for trucking futures. They never actually built it. I went there and it was a white labeled version. They didn't have to, it was like 30 minutes of work on the back end. They would just private label it and give us what we needed, but they never actually did it. Quick break here while I tell you about something really exciting I've been working on called the Business Essentials Kit. Here's the deal I get asked all the time, John, how do you run your business effectively? What's the best way to build a website? How do I get a branded email? How do I save on legal fees? How do I manage my social media? So what I've done is I've put a kit together for you for free. You can download it at johndavids.com with all the tools and services that I use to run my business. Get it right now for free at johndavids.com. And so I remember we had a launch party in August of 2017. And we're supposed to launch the futures trading platform. And it had this like simulation system that was built on top of it where you could simulate trades. Like almost like you'll see these in stock trading systems, even in crypto, where you can trade without real money and sort of simulate it. That was what it was built to do because we're trying to get this futures market launched that was going to launch the next year. And we wanted people to simulate it. So we had this launch party, but no product to show. And I remember we had just closed a $3.4 million round of funding from a firm out of Detroit for futures. Remember, they're all investing in this futures market. The media business didn't make the deck. The beta thing, which sort of happened in the middle of our fundraising, never mentioned it to them. An event, we never mentioned to them. And they funded us. And we didn't have a product to offer. So we had $3 million coming in the door. We had this community. And we're like, why don't we double down on this community? Why don't we double down on the media business. And let's take that $3 million and let's go build our own software platform. So, so we what, built... what, what exactly is FreightWaves today? Because when I look at the site, I don't see ads. I'm trying to figure out what does the company look like today from a revenue standpoint? So it's about $40 million in revenue. $20 million is in advertising. It is in advertising. And yeah. So And $20 million is in data. So and are, are you doing... Are these 
banner ads, sponsored. So banner ads, uh, you'll see them. And if you go click on articles, you'll see. Oh, I see them uh, now. You see ads. Look, there's a lot of media sites overly do the ad. Like they over, the reason you don't see ads is not because they're not there. It's $20 million in revenue. It's because they're, it's meant to be unobtrusive. Like we don't, we don't screen break you. You don't get like video popping at you when you hit the site and all the obnoxious things that people do. There as a lot of sponsored content will do. So if somebody has a financial product or a software product, they want to talk about it. We label it as such that it's advertising or content, uh, sponsored content. We do webinars, but it's a $20 million business to us. Wow. Uh, and the other 20 is what? Is data. So it's our software product that we took that $3 million and invested in something called Sonar. So if you go to sonar.freightways.com mm-hmm. and you'll see it on the website, you'll see high-frequency data, high-frequency supply chain data. That's out of our Sonar product. But we sell data to companies that are involved in transportation services, either buying or selling, Walmart, P&G, people like that, that are responsible for managing supply chains that need high-frequency data. Or alternatively, companies that are selling transportation services. So JB Hunt and Uber Freight, Delta Airlines are examples of customers that would end up buying our data to help inform their business. Again, it's bringing in data points from this entirely massively fragmented business, which is millions of companies. and focusing on high-frequency data. And the way we built this was we went out and sourced data. So one of the things that I learned in my journey of building commodity markets is in the oil business and even agriculture, but oil is probably the best example, is that there's all these high-frequency data services which basically are trying to figure out what's happening in the oil market at any moment in time. So they're tracking ships around the world and looking at ship locations, looking at how full those ships are. Perhaps if it's we're talking equities. They have companies that fly over parking lots with drones to look at how full the parking lot is. So like a Home Depot, same source sales type mapping. Well, all these data services that are selling to hedge funds to bring in high frequency data. And what I realized in my journey was trucking had all this data services and software services and platform services, but nobody had aggregated all that data together. Nobody had gone out and bought it. So we went out and made a bunch of phone calls to software vendors in the space and payment companies and said, look, we want to buy your data. And they're like, well, our data, you know, these are our customers' data. I said, look, we want to buy the exhaust data. We want to anonymize what you're doing and aggregate it. And we want to strip out all of the identifiable information. And then what we want to do is build high-frequency mapping and signals to this data. And they're like, look, we deleted off our systems. It's worthless. Our contracts allow us to aggregate. And sure, we were going to monetize it at some point in our life, but we don't know how to do that. So you can have it for basically nothing. So we went out and developed all these exclusive relationships with these data vendors, these software vendors in the space, and ended up building this high-frequency data that we ended up selling. And now that's a 20 million product. You have this habit of taking what is one company's waste product and turning it into an asset and then making it's it very valuable. It is, that's a, I mean, that's a great way to think of it. Honestly, that's the best kind of business. There's a guy in town as a founder. Uh, he's now a very successful real estate developer. But Dalton, Georgia, which is a suburb of Chattanooga, Tennessee, is sort of the carpet capital of the country. So you have companies like Shaw Carpet and Mohawk. If you're about carpet, you probably know these names. Anyways, they did massively big companies. And one of the, he was working the dock. And he would see that they, when they would cut the carpet, they would leave off these... like you know They cut the edges off. And they would throw them in the dumpster because they didn't need them. Well, he realized that he could turn these into bath mats. Like these are the bathroom mats that you see at like Walmart. And so he ended up basically working this deal where he'd buy them for basically nothing, these bath mats. And then he would go turn them into mats. You know, he'd cut it out and turn it into mats. He made a fortune, built a, you know, a couple hundred million dollar business selling bath mats out of disposed carpet. And it's the same thing. I think a lot of people think they have to have a big idea to sort of build a business. I actually don't agree with that. I think you just have to look at another company's waste or something that's inopportune and find a way to exploit it. Again, the world's greatest founders, the world's greatest businesses, and the the most wealth is made through arbitrage. Everybody thinks you're like hustling. It's all arbitrage. It's how how Wall Street makes money. It's all arbitrage. That's how YouTube makes money. A friend of ours built a very, very big fire log company. So logs that you put in fire. And when I asked about how he built that business, there's two things that you need to do fire logs. You need sawdust and you need wax. Well, guess what? Those are both things that people throw away. And so he just took those products and built a giant fire log business out of it. Yeah. Look, there's so many businesses like that. I mean, that's the greatest thing is oftentimes companies 
have companies and, and businesses and even people have things that they don't value. And a lot of it, now that Freightways is a big, bigger business than when we when we started, you start to realize why big companies are slow to do things and why something that seems so easy and obvious to you as a founder that's just grinding it out, like, I don't know why they didn't do this, but this is some secret they don't know about. And if I if I if I go do it, are they going to copy me and rip me off? And I think investors get this sort of obsessed with what if Google builds this or Facebook builds this or in our case, what if Freightways builds this? The reality is in a company of scale, oftentimes you are aware that there's this waste out there, these projects that you're just not good at or things you need to get to. But you have a litany. It's sort of the innovator's dilemma, uh, sort of classic model where you have a litany of things that you need to do to, to sort of service your existing customers and your existing platform, that all that other stuff is just noise and distraction. And if someone, if you can partner with somebody to take that on, then that is an enormous benefit to you. And that's the same with data products is when we went to these companies, they were deleting the data. They knew that it was some value, but they didn't know how to actually exploit it. And for us, it was like, look, we can give you some money that you're not currently getting. And we believe that we can mine that data to actually create something of value and we will commercialize it and you get to benefit financially with zero risk on your part and zero work. Those things are, are win-wins. And that's essentially our business model today is we work with software vendors in the space, large-scale software vendors, and essentially go in and find their unaggregated anonymized data. They are well aware that their data has value. But once they reach the conclusion that they aren't, it's not in their list of the top priorities for the year... Usually, most CEOs, good CEOs, will prioritize we're going to do three things this year, and that's it, maybe five. Data is probably number 12 or 15 or 30. Like they'll get to it, but they'll get yeah. to it next year. And then guess what? Next year, they'll get to it. And this is what happens. And so for us, we just make it a lot easier for them to actually monetize the data. So let's get to flying because I'm dying to know this story. So how did you just for context for the listeners? So you own Flying Magazine, and you sort of—I mean, I knew Freightways before, but then you really came on my on my radar because of this aviation community. So I'd love to just hear this story of how it came about. How did you find flying, and then how did this community come about? So I'm a pilot. I've been flying since I was 13 years old. Sort of grew up in the original Top Gun generation and Microsoft Flight Simulator. For anyone who sort of remembers the old days, my dad had a PC. Family PC, because that's, that's what you had. Nobody had personal PCs. I used to fly Microsoft Flight Simulator, take off from Meg's Field. It was great. So I wanted to learn to fly. Because in those days, it was no virtual computerized games were not like they are today. So you wanted the real thing. And so I learned to fly at 13 and flew all the way to college. And at 20, I just stopped flying. I went out, I took a study abroad program, came back and just never took it up again. Flying's a lot like working out. Like once you get out of shape, you can't just get back in the airplane because you'll die. That's what causes a lot of pilot accidents is the lack of being in shape. So to be a pilot and be proficient, you need to be constantly sort of just maintaining that muscle and mental memory and muscle that exists. And so I just stopped. I knew it was too dangerous to sort of just take up one day. And I didn't have time. I had family and business and all this stuff. So I had built freight waves. And this is middle COVID looking for something to do because... I'm not traveling, which was a big part of my Freightways life at that point. And you just got bored. I had also gotten Freightways where we needed to raise money anymore. So as a founder of a company, one thing I, I sort of truly believe is that founders are really bad at most things. And I fired myself from every job that I ever had and tried to bring talent in. And so I had nothing to do. I'd fired myself out of work, right? Like I literally got so bored. And I had this founder's guilt of like, well, I'm not really working. I need to fire myself literally from the business. I even went to my board one day and like, hey, I'm going to quit. And they're like, what's wrong? I'm like, you don't need me. And they're like, no, we really do. And I'm like, no, I just literally am not working. Like, what do you want to do about that? So they didn't fire me. They didn't take my resignation. But I was like, okay, I need something else to keep busy. And decided to take up flying again. So I, I'm back in flying. And Flying Magazine, as a young pilot, was like Sports Illustrated when Michael Jordan was on the front cover. Like this was... This was the magazine. And I don't know how old you are, your listeners are, but if you grew up as a... I'm 43 years old. I came of age in the 80s and 90s. Magazines were big deals back then. Like getting your first subscription to a print magazine would be the equivalent of like getting your first social media account for a young kid or a YouTube account. Like it was a big deal. And you I remember I, I, I had Maxim magazine. 
Same, same thing. So Max yeah. is a generation behind flying or a generation behind my generation. But I was at the sort of the... I certainly appreciate the Maxim magazine. Same thing, right? You're waiting with anticipation about this magazine to come, especially as a young kid. And flying was, was, my, was the, the brand. Well, I took aviation. I was flying and I was reading, sort of re-equating myself. And I got really uninspired. I was like, man, these media sites suck. Like what happened to Flying Magazine? It used to be so good. And I didn't know whether it was my modern media brand because I built the successful media business, loved what Freightways had built in terms of top of funnel and using media to drive software sales, which is really the core business model. And I was like, maybe as a media executive, I'm just far more, far harder subjectively. Like if you become an expert or you're good at something or you do something every day, you're going to become very critical. You start to find fault in how other people run their business. And it was exactly what I, I felt with flying. And so one afternoon, it was a Sunday, it was a Saturday afternoon, I reached out to the owner of Flying Magazine, which was a big conglomerate based in Sweden that had a bunch of brands. In, they had bought Time Magazine and a bunch of other media publishing, lifestyle publishing, like uh, Field and Stream is one of those, a bunch of auto magazines that they had owned. And I said, hey, would you sell Flying? And they're like, look, it's not for sale, but we're happy to talk if you want to make an offer. Serendipitously, the guy who used to run the Aviation Association, the biggest aviation association, the AOPA, his name is Craig Fuller. So all of a sudden, they're getting this email from a Craig Fuller and they're like, oh, so Craig, this guy who on the AOPA, who's like the chief lobbyist, which we know very well, Fly Magazine, wants to talk about buying the magazine. Sure, we'll take a call. Well, we'll get on this call and they're like, well, dude, you're like a third of the age of this guy. Like, what, what is the deal? Like, you're not him. But by that point, they were sort of committed to having the conversation. So they're like, look, it's not for sale, but if you want to buy it, we'll sell it to you. So I worked up a deal that worked for me and uh, they took my offer. It was a generous offer from what they would have considered an offer. And for me, I felt like, hey, this is a lifestyle project. It's sort of like buying the Yankees. If you're sort of buying a sports team for a pilot, this is as good as it. And now I have this sort of trophy brand that I love and I can go hang out with aviation executives and see new airplanes. By the way, my whole thinking was, oh, I get to go like see the new airplane and go to the factory tours and hang out with the CEOs and designers of these really awesome airplanes and get sneak peeks. Guess what? It's on the magazine. I haven't done any of that. Like I get invited, but I never have time to actually do any of it. So my sort of thought that I would be able to do all this stuff didn't actually come true, but I now own Fly Magazine. And so, okay, so that, that's an amazing story about how you acquired it. And then what was the business model? So when you bought it, it was a trophy. Did you have ideas for how to make it better, make more money, you know, expand it to the internet? And then when did the whole idea of the aviation community come in? No, I mean, I knew instinctually that a couple of things that I knew. I wanted to make it better. So think of Mark Cuban buying the Dallas Mavericks. If you know that story, Dallas Mavericks was sort of beatdown team. Mark Cuban made a bunch of money during the early dot-com days with broadcast.com. And he put something like a at the time was a lot of money, hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe even a billion dollars, and like upgrading everything for the Mavericks, the stadium, the the team, you know, the the jets they would fly, everything they made, made all these massive investments because he loved basketball and loved the team. Same thing for me was I was like, I'm gonna make the best aviation magazine because I love aviation, not because I want to make a bunch of money. But the first thing I did was I was like, look, I'm gonna cut print out because I think print is a dated medium. I realized really quickly that print is really important to the community, but it's also sort of re-fell in love with print magazines because I now understand the value of print in the sense that when you read a print magazine, you open it up, you go on this journey. Like I'm a big Twitter person, which is constant like stimulation and dopamine hits in Twitter. That's what Twitter is built to do. And the problem is if I read something on a website, I get caught up in answering emails or reading Twitter or something else. I'm like constantly being inundated. Magazines don't do that. Magazines are a journey in themselves, print magazines. And so what we set out to do was create a beautiful print magazine, actually tripled the cost of what it cost to print the magazine by going really high end. So that was the first thing we did. But instinctually, I knew that if you own the most important media brand in a space, and in this case, for pilots, flying was the most storied, been around since, since for 95 years, since 1927, was inspired a guy named Ziv Davis, who's sort of the godfather of magazines. It was his first print publication, inspired by Lindbergh, created Flying Magazine. And it had all this history. 
And I realized if I own that, that I would figure out how to make money with this. Like the media business may make money, but that wasn't the goal. It was more like there is a community of people like me that love aviation, that identify with Flying Magazine, and there will be a way to make money. I just don't know what that is. So we bought the magazine and Freightways is a big TV studio uh, where we do about five hours of streaming content a day. I get about 80,000 people that tune in to supply chain content, oddly enough, that are live sort of video content. And I was like, well, I want to build a video studio, but if you're going to build one connected to aviation, you got to be at an airport because like airplanes can't like come into the studio downtown Chattanooga, right? So they, they have to be near the airport. And so we started talking to the local municipalities about, hey, I want to build a hangar with a studio so that we can do this sort of three-dimensional, four-dimensional video where maybe we'll do like pimp my rig kind of videos where you can show the airplane. But we wanted to build something to a runway. And I started talking to all of the local airports and they're like, look, these things are incredibly difficult to get the FAA to approve. It takes years. You got to go through the municipality to get approval, then the state, and then the federal government, the FAA to approve just to do any kind of build. Like, you know, this is going to be incredibly difficult. And nobody will build hangars. That's the other problem I identified really quickly was there is a massive shortage around the country for hangars, hangar space. And so I finally got to the point where I was like, I'm just going to build my own airport, which sounds like a really crazy thought. But that was my thought was, okay, constraint. I just need a runway, a piece of concrete or asphalt and a runway, and then just a hangar with a studio. And you can build a private airport. It's completely allowed. And that was what we set out to do. But really quickly realized, well, you can't make money. Airports just don't make money. So I need to figure out how to actually make money on this thing. So this idea of hangar shortage is real. And realized that there was an opportunity from a real estate play to do to put hangers. Well, then I ended up looking at all the land and I found this piece of land for 1,500 acres for $3.65 million, $2,400 an acre, in the middle of what I would argue is one of the most beautiful valleys in the entire eastern half of the United States. But it's a very rural area, not developed. And I ended up buying it for $2,400 an acre, a major state highway running through it. It's got all of the utilities and stuff. and it backs up to a river. It's got a mile of riverfront and three miles of bluff property. So it's in the valley riverfront and has streams that come down. Just gorgeous property. And I was like, I went there and there's a place in East Tennessee called Blackberry Farm, which is this rural agricultural resort, luxury resort. It's like $4,000 a night where people, there's no golf course, but people go there for this sort of back to country lifestyle. They sort of do it. It is like white women heaven. Like they love this stuff. This is like everything is so great about this. Like women absolutely adore this like Blackberry Farm thing. And the reality is I realized that there was a massive opportunity to sort of lean into this Blackberry Farm concept, but tied to aviation. That is, I mean, and the way you pulled it off. So so just, just to cap off the story, the actual way you financed it, I mean, you said it was 2400 dollars an acre, I think you said. And then you bring people in. And what's the story of you run a magazine ad and all of a sudden you get all this demand? So we, you know, we did this thing where we had we had the print magazine and I own the print magazine and I bought this land and I was like, look, let's go test it out. So we did this ad in our own magazine. We never hired a real estate agent and we said, look, let's this is the plan. We're going to build this thing. And let's see what the demand is. And so we posted these ads, print ads. And when the magazine hit, we did one on digital as well because we, we cross-colonate content. We had like 600 people that ended up applying because we touched on this hot button. The hot button we touched on was this Blackberry Farm lifestyle of sort of back-to-country living, of uh, being back to sort of high-end luxury spa. And it was really resonating to females. Every airport, there's 600 of these around the country, which is sort of a strange environment because they're air parks, but most of them are like old dudes that like own a farm and end up building these World War II hangars. Like my wife is like, no, no way in hell am I ever going to go live there. Even be, be seen there is not happening. We realized that I had to sell my wife on this. And I had to sell someone that was like me, who had a family, had kids that would want to live there, but had to resonate with the whole family. So our whole marketing pitch was about this lifestyle, not about the runway, not about the airplane elements, 
but it was all about this lifestyle that just happened to have a runway where you could actually taxi your airplane. And one thing I want to be clear, because a lot of people get this confused, they think in their mind that these are Gulf, these are like jet setting, Gulf Stream, two pilots, you know, billionaires, people that are flying around with private jets, you know, the Kardashian style jet. It's not who our audience is. Yes, there may be one or two of those that exist in the audience. The reality is we are targeting to people who are active pilots who happen to have aviation as a core interest in their life. And so basically, they, like a boater, if you think about a boater, somebody who loves boating, they want to have a dock connected to their house. They want to be out on the lake or out on the river, out in the water as often as possible. Pilots have that same desire, but for aviation. And so when we think about that, it's the runway connects to the home. It's not, I want to fly my private jet because I'm I don't, I'm too good to drive to the airport for 20 minutes. That's not who we're targeting. We're targeting people who literally get up, eat breakfast, and want to hit hit the airplane as soon as possible, or maybe in the afternoon, want to fly around for 30 minutes to get their head straight about an issue they're dealing with. And those are the people that were that were aviation is a core part of their life. And they're there, it's part of what they want to do. And so that is the audience who resonates. So we take this magazine article out, 500 people respond to it. We have not broken ground. It's a hay field right now. And we've priced it. <laughs> this is sort of a funny story because like original pricing was the guy who did the original quoting miscalculated. The, we, we originally had acres and then he, it was quarter acres. Anyways, he got the price wrong, but he got it wrong to the upside. Well, all of a sudden, people started like really re- the pricing resonates with them. And they're like, look, I think this is great. It's a great value. And all of a sudden, we get this a lot of interest in the market. So we've sold $28 million in pre-bookings, which what that means is they put down a deposit to to buy the right to buy it. And we will break ground next month and they'll have the opportunity to actually close on those lots. And so we've not taken on any third-party advertising. Only in our magazine have we sold have we produced an ad and it's strictly through our own group. We've sold 200 lots basically through that. This is amazing. So to finish off here, the the big sort of takeaways for anybody listening, I mean, we talked for the first bit about arbitrage excess or waste product opportunity, turning that into a product. And, and there's t- obviously lots of value there. This idea with freight waves and with flying is the power of community. I mean, you put something out there that there's a real desire for and people will jump on it. And you know, the only way to figure that out, and you kind of landed on it twice, no pun intended, with freight and with flying. Is there some other business insight that you think has carried through your, your entrepreneurial journey? Look, I, I think if I had a playbook, my playbook is, and this is something I, I learned later in my life, is that if you can build a business that has a strong communal element to it, media is an obvious avenue for me because content drives community, which then drives results. Like, I just want to be clear what I mean by community. It's not as if we have a social media site where people are blogging and contacting to each other. What a community means is that you have a common interest and you're responding to the content that's being created. In our case at FreightWaves, it's the news and information that we put out and it's the physical events that we host. That's what community means in terms of FreightWaves. For Fly Magazine, it's the community that responds to the brand and the the articles that we put into the magazine. And I'm sure folks on the, the podcast, whether it's an online site, what's your favorite online, what's your favorite non-news media brand? Non, sorry, say it like, again. Do you have like a non- magazine that you like? That do you have a special yeah, interest yeah, in? So Bloomberg Business Week. All right. Well, Bloomberg sort of. So, so think about Bloomberg. Oh, I'm sorry, you said not news. Yeah. So not news. Oh, that's a good question. Um, you have like I, a, I'm a bad person. Ask, I'm a news or, junkie. Bloomberg. You have a high affinity for Bloomberg. Like you love the brand because you love the content and you regard the content that they put out to be high quality, and it means something to you. There is a a meaning to that. And it's the same thing that I think all media brands, high quality media brands have, especially ones that are, are decades old, is they have built this high level of affinity with their audiences. And what I think is there's a massive arbitrage opportunity available to take these media brands, whether you're building one organically like we did at FreightWaves, or buying one like I did at Flying, and finding tangential products that you can attach to. I had a, given a speech you know, a, a couple of years back 
And this is sort of the epiphany I had was I was talking about Freightways business model of using media to drive top of funnel for our freight and supply chain data. And this guy, this real estate agent comes up to me who sells log cab or lake cabins. And he's like, hey, I'm a, I run a, a real estate business that just sells lakefront property. Can I build a media business for my, for my real estate business? I said, absolutely. He goes, how would you do it? I said, you're talking about the lakefront lifestyle. Build content around that because people that are interested in that content will come to your site. And through that, you'll be able to figure out whom can you list properties with. The reality is 99% of the traffic comes to freight waves and, and perhaps 75 to even 99.9% of the traffic that comes to flying are never going to buy a lot. Like we know that. So you still have to serve the masses. And the mistake I think a lot of these media aspiring entrepreneurs are trying to cut media brands make, they oversubscribe to marketing. So if you, I have as a SaaS business at FreightWaves, my CFO is very orientated to CAC and LTV and anything that is a wasted activity that doesn't optimize long-term value or minimize customer acquisition costs, in his mind is a waste. The problem is media brands are sort of the opposite because the vast majority of what you do to maintain cadence and maintain quality and maintain content is a waste. You're not going to sell much to any of those people. And so it's always this rub that I find with people who are very sort of metric-driven in running a business that isn't media and people that are media-driven, which tend to be creative people that tend to be building creative content and inventory, they tend to be two different types of people. And, and you need to sort of balance that out. So I, I would say my... If I had a playbook is build the community, drive the content, serve the audience, and then find tangentially connected product offerings that you can offer those audiences, which they want and will naturally buy. And the one thing I'll add on there, because I think you, you hit the nail on the head, it's that as long as unit economics work out, you can make it happen. So you don't need everybody in the funnel to buy something. If 2 or 3% are actually purchasing something, and that thing they're purchasing, similar to the airline example you gave, is you know covers the cost of 100 other people who don't buy something, the economics are just fine there. That's right. It's all LTV to crack. So you think about a real estate. So we're selling a lot at 150,000 or 600,000 acres. So let's put that in perspective. So it costs us to produce an ad $36,000 to high-end $125,000, depending on how we do it. In terms of full production, out the door, produce the magazine, etc. You could do it far cheaper, but we go really high-end. And we, we, we have a lot of cost in that. But let's just say $36,000 is the most efficient way to do it. So a four-page ad, $36,000 in the magazine. When you think about it from that perspective, if I get one contract, so one lot at $125,000... So I've, I've, I've sent the magazine out to 100 and some thousand subscribers... I have one person that responds to it. I've turned $36,000 into $125,000. That's assuming just one conversion. I've got a 4x return. So it is all about what is my return on investment of the whole population. To your point, this may resonate with one person, but it's all about understanding how what's the value of that client for you as you, as you build it. So I think magazines are exceptionally good. And I tell ad prospective advertisers, because we sell outside advertising is, look, if you have a high volume product that's low cost, ma print magazines are a horrible place to invest in them because you can't, you can't attribute them. You can't track them. The value, unless I know that I'm going to drive an enormous amount of volume, it's hard to do that. Digital is far better. But if you have a very high dollar product that has you're looking to resonate with a single buyer or a, a very select number of buyers, then the value you have through print is enormous. And I think that's where we've seen is that it's all about what that community can do and ultimately what those results and yield can do. And I think when I think about this, this playbook that exists, and I call it content supported X because we've we've proven it with software. Freightways sonar, this the data business I talked about is a 20 million AR business that is basically achieved what we call negative CAC because of our media business generates contribution margin. We take, we track our customer acquisition costs through traditional metrics, which is what a software company would naturally do and say, what does it cost to acquire these customers? And then we take the contribution margin from our media business, which is profitable. And we look at the thing in net and we say, look, our 
customer acquisition cost is actually negative because we treat our media business as a serving engine for that. For flying, it's essentially the same thing as I have a media publication, which is profitable. And I just so happen to have a real estate business, which is incredibly profitable, that is contributed by this media business. And so it works. And I think there's so many examples of that that you could look and say, I'm in a business where... And, and think about whatever that is, whether it's financial services. You know, We've looked at flying of, of doing things around things like aircraft lending and financing and loan origination, because that's another sort of thing that our audience needs. Buying a new airplane or even a, a used airplane, then there's things like, hey, I need to finance that. Why can't we sell them those things? Things. So I think there's a lot of these opportunities out there. And magazines, the greatest thing about magazines is they don't sell for high value. You're talking four times EBITDA, maybe six on a high end for these print magazines. And if you're sort of willing to do the work of sort of making them into something worthy and you have a little bit of capital attached to you, then you can actually create a really profitable sales engine and top of funnel engine that can help you build other types of businesses. Well, you're just spewing gold here. So I hope the the listeners understand what you're saying because the just if you get one thing out of this and it was absolutely brilliant, it's the idea of building a community, building a media company and then selling something on top of that that makes everything else you're doing worthwhile and pays for it and then some. As you said, the 4x return on the magazine ad versus the lot. I mean, that's right there. Yeah, I mean, look, um, our magazine's profitable. It's a great sort of headline is I mean, it's a nice cash flow business. Like it generates a nice profit. Like I'm never going to get super wealthy owning the magazine. I won't pretend that it's like a massively profitable business, but it's a nice it's a nice side hustle. But the real value is in the connectedness and that secondary business that the magazine itself is there to service the core business. The thing is you have to understand is your community will support it so long as they believe that what you're offering is safe and on brand and represents the community. You cannot, and look, I've learned this the hard way. You cannot get away with just slapping products they don't care about or it's obnoxious. So we did a, a big print publication inside of Flying where it was largely about real estate and it looked like Flying Magazine. And all of a sudden, people are like, wait, is this, you sent me a real estate magazine about all the places I could fly from the fields, which is what we call the real estate project. But I don't want to own real estate. Why did you do this? And what we realized was we have that opportunity to do that so long as we don't break convention with our audience, which is we have to respect that they are there because they want to be there. They love the brand. And you can't take that that marketing side too far. So we realized, hey, we probably went a little too far. We won't do that again. And that's okay. They have a lot of trust in the brand. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, leave a rating or review on Apple or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps other people find the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. We'll talk to you guys next time.